All right, well, last week we finished the text of Psalm 119. And this morning, we're going to take one final Sunday for us to kind of put it all together. <clears throat> Excuse me, a conclusion to the series. So this morning will be a lot of review, and we are going to go through a lot of different scripture verses. But I'm hoping that this kind of big picture overview will be helpful in putting all the pieces of the puzzle together into one coherent picture for us. We're not actually going to be in the text of Psalm 119 this morning. We're going to be in a lot of other places. So I'll just ask you to kind of call to mind all the things we've seen in Psalm 119. What the psalmist has said about God's law, his love for it, his delight in it, how he sees it as his guide, as his standard, excuse me, So just kind of have that in your mind, be thinking about what you've seen in Psalm 119 as we walk through all these other texts this morning, as we think about what scripture teaches us about God's law. We're going to begin where we actually began the series, and that is in Matthew chapter 5 with what Jesus says, Matthew 5, 17 to 19. And I want to read this for you. You'll remember Jesus is here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount as he's giving this instruction. And he's giving, um, he's kind of like a new Moses. He's a new lawgiver. He's on the Mount like Moses was on the Mount. He's giving instructions and laws for his people like Moses had done. He's, and essentially, he's, he's reinforcing all that Moses had said. But here's what he says. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 19. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. As you read those verses, the question that has to come to our mind is, okay, then what do we do with the Old Testament law? What did Jesus intend? What does he mean when he says that he came to fulfill the law? What exactly does that mean? And so this morning, I want to walk through a couple different questions that we will ask and try to answer. The first question is, what is the law? Just again, to get our minds around, when we think through the story of the Bible, what role does the law play? What is the law in Scripture? And then we'll answer the question, what does Jesus do with the law? When Jesus comes on the scene, what changes? What stays the same? What does he say about the law? How does he use the law? Then briefly, we'll just think about the question, what does the rest of the New Testament have to say about the law? Do any of the New Testament writers explain things that help us understand the role of the the law in the church today? And then finally, we'll try to kind of turn the spotlight on ourselves and ask the question, what should we do with the law today? What role does it play in our lives? So let's begin with that first question, what is the law? And we've said throughout this series, the law is a transcript of God's character. It is what it is because of who God is. It expresses to us who he is. And the law describes for us the way the world is. We talk about laws in our world like the law of gravity or the second law of thermodynamics. And those are not laws that somehow someone's required to obey. They really just describe the way the world works because it's created by God. He created it with these laws in place. And the same thing is true of God's law in Scripture. It's the way the world is. When you violate God's law, bad things happen. When you obey his law, good things happen. It's the way the world is. The law of God is just the written expression of the way God has created the world to be based on who he is. If you were to think of it kind of chronologically through the story of the Bible, you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the law of God was written on the hearts of Adam and Eve. 
They understood the law because God created them with it written on their hearts. And then when they sinned, that law written on their hearts became obscured, damaged, smudged. As the story goes on, we see that God chooses the nation of Israel to work with. And he rescues them out of slavery in Egypt. And he brings them out to Mount Sinai and he writes his law on stone and gives it to them. But that written law that God gives to them is the same law that was written on the hearts of Adam and Eve in the garden. And now Israel is called to live by this law. And in doing that, they will be a witness to the world around them. By the time we get to the New Testament and we see Jesus come on the scene, Jesus says that he came to fulfill the law, as we just read. He is our representative. He stands in our place. He's our king. He ascends to to be seated on the throne, and then he gives the gift of the Spirit. And all of that is in fulfillment of what the law had even said would happen in the ceremonial law. It pictured what Jesus would do. Jesus says he came to fulfill it, to obey it. And then once the Spirit is poured out, we now in the church have the Spirit in us and he writes the law on our hearts again. So it's rewritten on our hearts and the law written on our hearts matches the law written in God's word. And so we are to be obedient to that law today. So when we think about the Old Testament law and how we're supposed to understand it today, We need to understand it in that whole story of scripture, but we also need to understand how the law functions, how the different parts of it function. We had put up a number of different times this chart to kind of help us explain the law. If we begin at the bottom, we see the law, the law underneath the law. And what we mean by that is really just what we just said. It's the transcript of God's character. It's the way the world is. It's how God has created things to be. There is a law written into the very fabric of the universe that is foundational. And when we talk about God's law in scripture, it's an outworking of that. So there's the law underneath the law. When Jesus is asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? You know, of all the, you know, if you're a Pharisee, the 613 commandments that there are, which one's the greatest one? Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, your mind and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus says the two foundational laws are love God and love others. That's an expression of the law underneath the law. Love God and love others. And then when we say, okay, but what does that look like specifically in detail? That's what we find in the Ten Commandments. It details for us what it looks like to love God and love others. So, you know, there's, there's arguments about how you're supposed to divide it out, but the first table of the law and the second table of the law, and where does commandment number five, honor your parents, fit? Does it fit with the first group or with the second group? I think it's transitional. It kind of fits in both. But the first four, maybe five, tell us what it looks like to love God. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't worship idols. Don't take my name in vain. Remember, the Sabbath day to keep it holy as a day set apart to honor me. And then, because my authority is exercised on earth through human authorities that I've put in place, obey them. Honor your parents. Honor the other authorities that I've put in place. All of that is what it looks like to love God. And then love others. So don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness. All of these things are what it looks like to love others. So the Ten Commandments are a fleshing out of the two commandments, love God and love others. Then as we look beyond that, if you look over on this side, we have the ceremonial law. What is the function of the ceremonial law? Well, it's basically saying, since none of you can keep all these laws, we've all broken the Ten Commandments, what is God going to do about it? What's the proper response? And the ceremonial law shows us, first of all, what we deserve as lawbreakers, 
but it also foreshadows what God was going to do about it, how he was going to rescue sinners, what he was going to do in Christ. And so we have it divided out into kind of three parts. There's the laws of separation that talks about holiness. So for example, we have a law like don't wear clothes that are of, of a mixed cotton poly blend, right? You can't wear mixed fibers in Old Testament Israel. Why? It's just a tangible illustration as you put on your clothes every day, that you're not to be mixed with unbelievers, that you're to be wholly dedicated to the Lord, that you're to be clean, you're to be holy, you're set apart to him. And as a nation, they were set apart to him. It's an illustration of that. Then we have the laws of temple worship that are also part of the ceremonial law. So you go to the temple and you make sacrifices. And all of those things are picturing things that that help us understand what it takes to come into God's presence. So you have all the laws about what it means to be unclean and how you get clean and you can't come to the tabernacle if you're unclean and here's what it takes to purify yourself. And All of those things are again pointing us forward to what Christ would do to deal with our sin problem, with our law-breaking problem. And then we have the festivals and holidays. So you have things like we're going to celebrate Passover if you're in Old Testament Israel because that's the day when we celebrate God rescuing us out of Egypt. And what did God do? Well, we have the sacrifice of the lamb and the blood on the doorpost. And so we remember God's deliverance of us. And the sacrifice of the lamb is associated with this because the, the lamb died in the place of the firstborn who should have died. And when we have this, the Passover celebration, if you're in Old Testament Israel, it's pointing you forward to the Lamb of God who would die in the place of his people so that they could be rescued and delivered from their sins. And so the ceremonial law is picturing what God does because we are lawbreakers to rescue us from our sins, what he does in Christ. The other side of the picture, the civil law, is answering the question, okay, if we take these Ten Commandments, if we take the, the law that God has given and we live it out in, in a society, what does that look like? And so the civil law details that for us. Here's what it looks like to live in a way that honors God's law. And so, for example, we have equal weights and measures. Why? Well, because you're not supposed to bear false witness and you're not supposed to steal and you shouldn't covet what doesn't belong to you. And all of those things work themselves out in commerce, in the economy, by equal weights and measures. We're not going to cheat people. Th those are examples of the civil law and how it's supposed to function. Now, what happens when someone breaks that? What do we do about it? That's where the case laws come in. They illustrate how to bring about restitution when those laws have been broken. And so that's how the whole law kind of functions together. That's what the law is. Now, when we come to the New Testament, what does Jesus do with the law? We read Matthew 5. He says he came to fulfill, not to abolish. What does that mean? It's not this, but that. So what, what's the contrast with abolish that Jesus is getting at when he says he came to fulfill? And we said that the word fulfill means to fill something up to its full measure. Not to overfill it, not to underfill it, but to fill it up to its full measure. Jesus, by his life, fills up the law. You want to know what it looks like for someone to, to live according to God's law perfectly, Jesus does it. He shows us. He fills up the law perfectly. That's what he means when he says he came to fulfill the law. He fulfills even the ceremonial parts because they were all pointing to him. He fulfills every aspect of the law. It can be helpful to understand what this word means if we look at James chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, for those of us who understand that we're justified by grace through faith, not by works, James's words here set off alarm bells. What does he mean? We're justified by works. How was Abraham justified by works? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was 
completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. So Abraham had faith and that faith was completed, fulfilled by his works. But really the helpful thing in here is to understand this. Where in scripture was it said that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? That's Genesis 15. Where does he offer up Isaac? That's Genesis 22. So Genesis 22 fulfills Genesis 15. What was spoken and declared in Genesis 15 was fulfilled, lived out, obeyed perfectly in Genesis 22. That's what it means to fulfill. That's what Jesus came to do. Jesus is the fulfillment of the ceremonial laws. So we read, for instance, in Hebrews 10, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All those Old Testament sacrifices could never take away sins because they weren't designed to. They were pointing you forward to a sacrifice that would come one day that would take care of sins. And so Hebrews 10 tells us, we have been sanctified, made holy, through the offering of, of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament sacrifices. What they were pointing to is exactly what he is and does. Same thing is true of all the festivals and holidays. So you think of the, the festival of first fruits. It's a harvest festival. Right? We, we, we have a harvest festival coming, right? We have Thanksgiving where we tend to be thankful for the harvest. Well, the first fruits is the beginning of the harvest. So when the first, um, the first part of the crop is ready, that's when the first fruits offering is given. And the idea is God has blessed us with this and we offer this to him in faith and hope that there's going to be a future harvest. This harvest is going to continue and we're going to see the fulfillment of the harvest one day. Well, when you come to the New Testament, Paul, in explaining the resurrection of Jesus, says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So just like you put the seed in the ground and the very first part that comes up is taken and offered as first fruits to God in the hope that there's more coming, Jesus, when he dies, is buried but he comes back to life. He's raised to life and he's the first fruits of the resurrection. We have the hope, the future hope of a resurrection someday because Jesus is the first fruits. Every festival of the Old Testament is like this. Jesus is the fulfillment of it. He is what they were all pointing toward. It's also helpful for us to recognize here that Jesus serves as our representative king. One of the fancy terms we put on that is he's our federal head. We have a federal system of government where we have representatives and they make decisions and they do things and those decisions affect us because they are our representatives. They act on our behalf, in theory. But Jesus is a perfect federal head. He acts on behalf of his people. So Romans 5 tells us, it sets us up with this contrast between Adam and Jesus. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Okay, so Adam is a type, a picture of Jesus who's coming. In that, he represents his people. So the passage goes on later to say this, Therefore, as one trespass, so that's Adam's trespass, led to condemnation for all men. Because okay, remember, Adam is our representative. When Adam sins, it throws the whole human race into that predicament of sin because he was our representative. He was our federal head. Okay, so as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So everyone that's represented by Adam is in the predicament of sin because of Adam's representative choice on our behalf. But when Jesus comes, he makes a representative choice on behalf of all of his people. 
And so we have righteousness because of what he did on our behalf. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteousness. And the greatest picture of this in all of scripture is the story of David and Goliath. David shows up when Israel is at war with Philistia. He shows up. He's not in the army yet. He's young. He's staying home carrying the sheep, taking care of the sheep. But he comes to check on his brothers, bring them food, bring them supplies. And he sees what's going on. The Philistine champion Goliath has been coming out and challenging Israel. You send me a champion to fight against me. And if I win, Goliath says, then my people win. If you can defeat me, then your people win. That's the setup of a representative. So David has been anointed at this point. He's going to be the next king, but he's not yet on the throne. He comes out and he says, I'll fight him. And so David goes out to fight Goliath. And if David wins, then God's people win. And if David loses, then God's people lose. We always make the mistake in reading the story of David and Goliath. We think it's about facing your giants, right? It's not. You want to write yourself into the story. You are the scared Israelites up on the hillside watching while your champion goes to battle on your behalf. Christ goes out and fights sin and Satan and death on our behalf, just like David fought Goliath. And we, having done nothing, get the victory because he won it for us. That's what it means that Jesus is our representative. So what he accomplishes, he accomplishes on behalf of his people. And the result of that is then that we are freed from the penalty of the law. Jesus didn't deserve to die. The penalty of the law was death. Jesus never broke the law. He didn't deserve that penalty, but he took it for us. So Hebrews tells us, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was sinless. He never broke the law. He didn't deserve the penalty, but he took it on himself. So Paul says in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. He's the sacrificial lamb. He takes the penalty for our sin. Though he didn't deserve it, he does it in our place. Just as David fought in the place of the Israelites, Jesus fights in our place. He dies the death we deserved in our place. And the result is we no longer face the penalty because God is just and God won't take the same penalty from two different people for the same crime, the same offense. That would be injustice. So Jesus has already paid the penalty for us. There's no penalty left for us to pay. He's done it for us. So when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. He's actually establishing it. He's showing us what it looks like. God doesn't change and his law doesn't change. The promise of the new covenant was this in Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. He doesn't say, I will write a new and different law on their hearts. He says, I'll write my law on their hearts. The one that's been broken, I'll write it on their hearts. The law doesn't change. The way that we find ourselves to be law keepers is what changes. We couldn't keep the law on our own, but we keep it in the sense that Jesus has kept it for us. And then because we are his, the spirit writes the law on our hearts. And we are now enabled to obey the law from the heart rather than just the externals that we so struggle with. But Jesus affirms the law. And I'm going to move through this quickly, but I want you to see how often Jesus affirms the law of God. Matthew 7 
Jesus says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We call this the golden rule, but Jesus bases the golden rule on the law. He says, golden rule. It's not a new law. It's not a different law. This is the law and the prophets, is what Jesus says. Matthew 22, Jesus is asked the question about which is the greatest commandment. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He doesn't say, I'm giving you a new command that replaces all the old ones. He says, this is the basics of it. And everything else in the law depends on these two. Why is this the greatest command? Jesus says when you put these two commands together, love God and love others, the rest of the law hangs on that. Think about the logic of that. That must mean that to obey these two commands, love God and love others, is to obey the rest of the law. Or to put it the other way around, to obey all the other commands of the law is to love God and love others. The rest of the law, the Ten Commandments, the ceremonial laws, the case laws, all of that, is a particularization of these two commands. What does it look like to love God and love others? Here's what it looks like. It looks like these Ten Commandments. It looks like these civil laws. It looks like these case laws. It looks like these ceremonial laws. This is what it looks like to love God and love others. Jesus, in Matthew 12, he and his disciples pluck grain while they're walking through the fields. On the Sabbath, they get attacked for that. Jesus justifies his behavior on the basis of the law. John 7, Jesus appeals to the law as to why he was willing to break the Sabbath to heal someone. Luke chapter 10, a lawyer asks Jesus, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what does the law say? How do you read it? And the lawyer quotes the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Jesus affirms the law. Then the man asks who his neighbor is. And Jesus goes on to give us the story of the Good Samaritan. That story is explaining, illustrating how you obey the law. Mark 1, Jesus heals a leper, and then what does he do? He says, go to the temple and see the priest, because that's what the law demands. Mark 7, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. Jesus condemns the religious leaders because they're using their tradition to get around obeying the law to honor their parents. This one's interesting. Mark chapter 10, verse 19, Jesus says, You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. If you grew up on, Sunday, on Sesame Street, like I did, you had that song, one of these things does not belong here, one of these things is not the same. Come on, can you tell which one? Can you tell which one doesn't belong in that list? Do not defraud. All the rest of them are part of the Ten Commandments. Do not defraud comes from Deuteronomy 24. It's actually part of a case law. But Jesus puts it right alongside the other Ten Commandments as binding on his people. He doesn't see any distinction there. He's consistent. That's what Jesus does. Now, what about the rest of the New Testament? Do we get any other help there? I think we do. Jesus affirms the law, and then the law serves as a pattern of sanctification for us. How do we know how we're supposed to be holy? The law teaches us. So Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Paul adds, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Boy, do we want to put love and law in opposition in our day, in the church. But the whole of scripture teaches us that the law is an expression of love. What does love look like in action? It looks like keeping God's law. 
I'm going to have you turn to this one. Turn in your Bible to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. We talked about this a while back in the series, but I want to emphasize it again. Throughout this letter to the Galatians, Paul has been correcting the misuse of the law. The law, Paul says, is not a means of salvation. The law shows us what holiness is. It shows us, therefore, how we have failed. But keeping the law will never be a means of salvation because none of us can actually keep the law perfectly. Listen to what he says, beginning in chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. So Paul says, you were called to live in freedom, not in the flesh. He says that Love fulfills the law. The whole law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? Verse 16, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So we just saw that Paul said, live in freedom, not flesh. Now he says, walk by the spirit, not by the flesh. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. What does that mean? Well, under the law here means under the condemnation or judgment of the law. If you're living by the Spirit, Paul is saying, then you won't be doing anything for which the law would condemn you. You're not under the law's condemnation. And that becomes clear in the next verses. Look at what it says. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, those things that Paul just listed are the very things that are against God's law. Don't do those things, Paul says. If you're doing those things, you're obeying the flesh, not the spirit. And so you're under the condemnation of the law if you're doing those things. Pick it up in verse 22. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the fruit of the spirit. So in other words, if you're walking by the spirit, here's the fruit that will be evident in your life. And what's the very first one? love. Do you see? Love God and love others, the two greatest commandments. And if you're walking by the Spirit, then you'll be walking in love, obeying God's command, not under the condemnation of the law because you're not disobeying the law. Instead, you're obeying it. You're loving God and loving others. Now, let me read the fruit of the Spirit again. And this time I'll let Paul finish his thought. Okay, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Do you see? There's no law against these things because these things are the very fulfillment of the law and what it's always been saying all along. Love God and love others. Paul is saying that walking by the Spirit is the same thing as obeying God's law because they're both defined by love. Love God, love others. That's walking by the Spirit. That's obeying God's law. God's law is love codified, put into legal code. This is one thing that we mean when we say that our mission as a church is discovering together what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the law. He filled it up to its full measure. That's what we should do too. We should live that way. 
So we've been freed from the penalty of the law, as we talked about earlier. Here we see walking by the Spirit and keeping the law are the same thing. The law is good because it helps us learn how to live a holy life. Listen to how James says this, James 1. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. In other words, you go to the mirror, you look in the mirror, you see the big smudge of dirt on your face, you notice it, and then you walk away and don't do anything about it. That's what James is saying. Okay? He says, being a hearer of the word means that you've seen the smudge, but not being a doer means you're not doing anything about it. You're not increasing in holiness. You're not cleaning up. Okay? But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, what is the law of liberty? The law of liberty is when Jesus has taken the penalty for you and you're no longer under the law's penalty and now you have the law written on your heart and you can obey from the heart without any fear of the penalties because that's been taken for you, you can obey out of gratitude. That's the law of liberty. That's the perfect law. When you look at that and persevere, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. That's keeping the law from the heart. Vavazor Powell, in his book, Christ and Moses, explains the outward letter of the law is a good book in the hand of the Spirit to teach and guide believers what to do and how to do. So, in other words, God has sent his Spirit into our hearts, and now we walk by the Spirit. How is it that the Spirit teaches us? What's the curriculum that the Spirit uses to teach us holiness. The Spirit's curriculum to teach us is God's law. That's why when we looked at Galatians 5, Paul says Christian ethics, how we're supposed to live, is obedience or fulfillment of the law. And Paul, as he writes, this goes right down to the details. He even assumes that the case laws still apply today. 2 Corinthians Six, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. So is that talking about marriage? Yes, of course it is. But what does he pull that from? Old Testament case law about yoking an ox and a donkey together. Paul doesn't say... You remember that Old Testament law that we don't have to obey anymore about the ox and the donkey not being yoked together? There were some lessons in there that we can use for today. No, he says, he, he quotes the law and he says that law is what determines that you are not to be unequally yoked today. That law, Paul says, is still in effect. If you understand rightly what God meant when he said, don't put an ox and a donkey together behind the plow, that's still valid today, Paul says, and it applies to your relationships. Here's another example, 1 Corinthians 9. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Paul's justifying the idea that he can be paid as a minister of the gospel by those to whom he's ministering. But where does he go to make that point? He goes to an Old Testament case law about not muzzling an ox when it treads out the grain. Paul says that law is still authoritative in the church today, and it determines how you're supposed to respond to Paul's ministry of the gospel. Right down to the case laws, still valid today. So, what should we do with the law? 
We've seen what the law is. We've seen what Christ does with it, what the rest of the New Testament says about the law. What about us? What do we do today with the law? Well, the first thing is we need to recognize that the law is that standard that we're measured against. You always want to have the right standard. If you're baking a pan of brownies and it says to add a quarter cup of oil and you say, well, I don't have a quarter cup. I'm just going to put in a quarter gallon. How are your brownies going to turn out? Not so good, right? Because you didn't use the right measurement. You didn't use the right standard. The law serves as God's perfect standard. And when we measure ourselves against that standard, we fall short. It's an important use of the law for us today. So Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If the law is the transcript of God's character, the law displays his glory. We fall short of that glory when we sin, when we violate his law. And what's the consequence for that? The wages of sin is death. But as we've already seen, for those who have faith in Christ, that penalty is already taken care of. So the law shows us our sin. It's an important standard for us to understand. It's what brings us to Christ. But more than that, the way that the law is to be used in our lives today is sanctification. It's the pattern that we follow in order to live a holy life. The Puritan Edward Fisher in his book, The Marrow of Modern Divinity, he says, the difference here between justification and sanctification, let me just define those really quick. Justification is being declared righteous in God's sight. So in the courtroom that God judges us in, he says, you are not guilty. Why? The penalty's already been paid by Christ. The righteousness of Christ has been given to us, so we stand before God's court dressed in the righteousness of Christ, and so he says, you're justified, not guilty. Sanctification is, day by day, am I living a holy life? Am I increasingly becoming more like him? That's sanctification, okay? Now, Edward Fisher says the difference between justification and sanctification is the difference between do this and live and live and do this. If we try to use the law for justification, then it's do this and live. Keep the law and earn life. You can't do it. But in terms of sanctification, it's live and do this. You've been given eternal life because of Christ. So now do this in response because you've been enabled by the Spirit. And the law is a good pattern. It displays God's character. We're supposed to be holy because God is holy. That's the whole design of the law as we saw in that chart. So how do we use the law as a pattern? Leviticus 20, keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. God says flat out, you want to be sanctified, here's how you do it. Keep my statutes and do them. I'll make you holy. 1 John 3, when we come to the New Testament, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Keeping God's commandments and abiding in him are the same. Walking in the Spirit and obeying the law go hand in hand. That's in our own lives. Now when we turn that out into the world around us, what does it mean? We've seen through this series that God has expectations for the rulers of this world. Sodom was judged according to God's standard of holiness. And it happened before God ever wrote the law at Mount Sinai. That same standard was valid. It was in place when God judged Sodom. And listen to how Peter describes Sodom. He's talking about Lot here. He says, that righteous man lived among them day after day, and he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. What law would that be measured by? By God's law. 
Pharaoh was judged, we saw, on the basis of God's laws regarding slavery, even though those laws hadn't been written down yet. Before the law was written, the same standard was in place. After the law has been written, the same standard is in place. We've seen in Psalm 2, the kings and rulers of the earth are called to serve the Lord, to bow before him. It is the responsibility of every ruler in this world to obey God. And as we look toward what God is doing in the world, we have this hope that there's going to come a day when God's law will, obedience to God's law will characterize this world because Christ's kingdom will grow. Listen to the language of Isaiah. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Why? That he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The nations here are streaming to the mountain of the Lord so that they can learn God's law. And they learn God's law, and they go back to where they came from, and they obey it. That's the vision he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. When the earth becomes characterized by obedience to God's law, such that the nations and their rulers are coming to God and learning his law and taking those things back to their nations, the result will be that you won't have wars between nations. You'll have peace because everyone's following God's law. That's the vision being painted here. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. You come to the New Testament and Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. And what does he say? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? As his kingdom comes, as it increases, what will be the mark? What will it be characterized by? His will, which is expressed in his law, will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. That's what Jesus tells us to pray for. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The last passage I want you to see this morning, and I think it's a fitting one for us to end this series on, is Matthew 28, 18 to 20. We call this the Great Commission. Jesus came and said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We say that our mission as a church is discovering together what it means to follow Jesus. Well, these words lay out exactly what his expectations are for you as you follow him. It's based on the fact that he's already ruling and reigning. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. All the authorities and rulers that we see on earth God stands behind them. Christ owns them. That's his authority. And he says, because I have all authority in heaven and on earth, you go. We go as ambassadors of Christ in his authority. When he ascended after the resurrection, he took his seat on the throne. He's ruling his kingdom now, putting all his enemies under his feet in his timing, in his way, and he calls us to be part of that mission. And what are we supposed to do? Make disciples of all nations. 
Disciples are people who follow their master, who become like him. All of the nations are called to do this. Every nation on earth is called to be a Christian nation. That means all of the people in those nations are called to become Christians, to repent and believe the gospel, to conform their lives to be like Christ, to obey his word, his law. That's what Jesus says. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, everyone is called to publicly commit to Jesus. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Every person and every nation on earth are called to obey the law of Christ. All that he's commanded. And Jesus will be with us as we obey his command. All of this begins in the home and in the church. It's really easy for us to look out there and see how God's law is being ignored. And it is. We had an election this week where the people of our state enshrined into law that murder is not to be penalized as long as you're murdering a certain class of people. That's wickedness. That's evil. That's absolutely opposed to God's law. But it's never going to change out there until God's people obey God's law in their homes and in the church. And we obey the Great Commission to go take that message to the world. We're not going to change the culture through laws. Though we should push for good laws, real change is going to be heart change. It's going to be the spirit bringing revival. And we, as God's people, must first be characterized by obedience to God's law. As the psalmist has demonstrated for us in Psalm 119, to know God's law, to love his law, to delight in his law, to obey it. When that's what characterizes God's people, then I think we will see change. May God give us hearts that delight in his law. Lord, I pray as we come to the end of this series in Psalm 119 that we would not forget what we have seen. That we would be doers of the word and not hearers only. That we truly would delight in your law that your spirit, as your spirit writes your laws on our hearts, that our lives would more and more conform to obedience to your law. We want to see change in our world. Show us how that change needs to start in our homes and in our church as we more and more become obedient to you. Teach us to love your law, to delight in it, and to obey it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.